Exodus 29. I'm excited tonight that some of our junior high and, and high school students are here, and I want you guys to know that what we're going to talk about in Exodus 29 is for you. This falls into that category of stuff that I wish I had known when I was in junior high or when I was in high school. I wish I had understood this. Or I wish someone had told me these things because it might have changed my outlook, my perspective on how I was living my life. And you might not think, well, Exodus 29, that, that might not be the first passage or chapter that I would go to for junior high or high school students. Well, for all of us, it takes us right into the middle of what we've been talking about, and that is designing a priesthood. And the fact is, gang, we are a priesthood. When you come into a relationship with Christ, when you step into life with Jesus, when you accept Him as Lord and Savior, you begin a journey of becoming a priest of the Lord. Maybe not the way we tend to think of priests today, but a priest nonetheless. You are destined for something fantastic, something marvelous, something wonderful. The Bible very clearly describes for us a promise of ruling and reigning with Christ as a royal priesthood. And as we talked about last week, this is not a metaphor. This is not just a a churchy kind of word to make us feel good about being Christians. This is why we're here. It's development, it's training. As we talked about again last week, we are priests in training. Jesus prayed this prayer, John 17, verse 17. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, which is every single one of us here tonight. Having come to faith in Christ, believing in Him through their word. What are you talking about? The Gospels. The epistles of Paul and James. The letters of John, these writings from the New Testament and old that bring us to faith in Jesus. We have come to faith in Jesus by their words. And so again, it just thrills me to know there are these moments in the Bible where we are specifically talked about. Where we are specifically referred to, and this is one of them, where Jesus was praying for you on the night he was betrayed. Is that stunning? To think that on that night when he could have had a hundred different things on his mind, especially the, the looming crucifixion, and yet in this prayer he had the presence of mind to consider Larry, to think about David, to see Corey, and to say specifically, I pray for those who believe in me through their word. To be a believer in Christ, then, is to be a priest in training. For in Jesus we have not only received salvation, we are receiving sanctification. That's an ongoing process. We've talked about this before. Salvation is what happens, guaranteed, when you come to faith in Jesus. You are saved. But the life that we continue to live after that, the pursuit of holiness... As we're going through reading and studying the Ten Commandments and trying to see how do these commandments apply to our lives, the point in living out the commandments and the teachings of God is not to gain the salvation we've already been given, but it's to pursue the sanctification that Jesus promises is going on as we live day in and day out in our lives. The Bible draws a direct parallel then between the priests of Israel, those linen-clad sons of Aaron, and the people of the church, those linen-clad saints depicted as the bride of Christ. And we can read about them in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8. But for tonight, 
We're going to follow this linen thread of the priesthood in comparison to the church just a bit further as we understand literally the consecration of the priests. As we move into chapter 29, I'm going to give you four words to jot down. These will kind of help you follow along as we're studying, help you to look at and understand this priesthood a little bit better and what these priests are all about, what it was that that they were doing and, and how they were to come into this relationship with God. Here are the four words if you want to jot them down. Consecration, identification, ordination, and continuation. I'll give those to you again. Consecration, identification, ordination, and continuation. Now, we're going to do all of Exodus 29 tonight. We're going to fly through some things. There may be a few things where you want to stop and say, oh, can we understand a little bit more about this? Let's prod into that more. Let's, Let's understand these things a bit further. And we will. Because the first eight chapters of the book of Leviticus, which is looming before us, those first eight chapters will go in depth to all these things. They will talk about, in specifics, all that we're going to look at tonight in miniature. So we're going to move a little faster through this chapter, knowing that we'll come back and cover these things more specifically. But again, these four areas for priestly preparation that apply so stunningly, I believe, to our lives in Christ today. The first one is consecration. Exodus chapter 29, verse 1. God is still speaking to Moses. They're still up on the mountain. And the Lord says, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, and you shall make them of fine wheat flour. Now that's one area we could spend a lot of time tonight, just on verse 2. The whole idea of the unleavened bread, and especially the fact that they were unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil. And we know that oil in the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit. And the unleavened bread speaking of the perfection of Jesus, of Jesus in the flesh, the bread from heaven, and the Spirit in Christ. There's so much in there, but we're just going to breeze by that that real quickly. Verse 3, you shall put them in one basket. And present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Consecration. Consecration. You shall consecrate these priests to me, the Lord says. What does consecration mean? It's the Hebrew word kadash. And it means literally to purify or to cleanse. And the high priest must begin clean. He must start out clean, washed before the Lord. And there's a picture here, again, for the high priest and the priest as well, this picture of consecration. And it looks exactly the same as the way we come to Christ. Watch this as we read on, verse 4. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. The first act of consecration of the priesthood is washing with water, washing them at the doorway. Now there are a couple of different washings here to note. For the priest, there's the washing of consecration on that day when Aaron became the high priest. It was a special washing to purify him and the others to the priesthood. It was a one-time deal. It was the origination of being consecrated to the Lord. They came to the doorway and they were washed before entering into the tabernacle. But there was a second kind of washing, and that was an ongoing ceremonial washing as the priests served the Lord in the temple day in and day out. They were never allowed to wander into the temple or into the tabernacle without having ceremonially washed themselves, even though they already did it on that first day. 
Two very different washings, two important washings. One was a washing of consecration. The other was a washing that was kind of an ongoing cleansing, a ceremonial washing. And they portray two things of us in the Christian life. The first one, Aaron's washing of consecration, is a picture of baptism. When we come to the Lord, when we express our faith in Him, when we desire to be His children... Yes, Lord, I want you in my life. We pray that prayer. We ask Jesus to come into our hearts. But that first act of obedience that Jesus himself calls us to is baptism. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a picture of washing that is, is so critical, gang, and yet it's diminished so much in importance in the church today. That it's a secondary thing. It has become that, that kind of point of controversy. And we've, we've shared this a little bit, that the baptism is something that either churches think to the extreme that if you're not baptized, you're not saved, or to the other extreme, well, I'm not going to get baptized because my salvation is by grace and I don't want to do any works to be saved. Well, that misses the point, too. Both miss the point. Jesus said, I want you to be washed. I want you to be consecrated. It's not a washing that saves you, but it is a washing that you're, where you're saying literally to the Father, Hey, I am giving my life to you. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, if you have not been baptized, and in the bridge we baptize by immersion. By the way, there's a reason for that. Again, in the big controversy of the church and what baptism really means, what it's all about, a couple things that are incredibly important to know is, number one, that baptism was always something that was done by choice. It was baptism in belief. It was believers' baptism. Now, there are many churches that will sprinkle infants, that will baptize small children, and yet the Bible doesn't teach baptism prior to belief. It teaches baptism after belief. Once you've come to faith in Christ, then your baptism is that act of obedience, that acceptance, that, that showing to the world that you have chosen the Lord. Not that your parents did. And if you, by the way, had been baptized as an infant by your parents, what I've said to people in the past is, hey, that's wonderful. Your parents were dedicating you. And getting baptized as an adult by choice is not a denial of their desire to dedicate you, but it's an acceptance on your own yourself of what Jesus has done for you. Your choice. Baptism always came after belief. But the other thing about baptism is the word itself means immersion, submersion, to be submerged. That's what the word means in the Greek. As some of you know this, the Greek word rantizo is another word that means sprinkling, but every time the word baptism is used, it's always baptizo, that, that word for submersion. And it wasn't until about the 3rd century that they began to stop immersing people when baptism happened. It was around that time that then they began sprinkling, and there were different reasons why, and there were also different reasons why infant baptism happened. I won't get into that tonight. But two things that are important, I believe... And again, not becoming legalistic about it. But man, Jesus said to be baptized. If you have not been, let me just encourage you. It is an act of obedience to the Lord. Jesus himself was baptized. So think about that if, if you haven't. But there's another baptism, another actual ceremonial washing that takes place that is an ongoing washing that's very similar to something in the Christian life today. The priestly ceremonial washing is a picture of, and I'll put it this way, brainwashing. 
Not brainwashing like being forced to believe something you don't want to believe, but brainwashing in a positive way, having your conscience continually washed clean from the muck of the world. And we need some brainwashing in a positive sense. We need that cleansing. And there's so much garbage that our eyes take in and our ears take in that our thoughts are consumed by and we need to be washed in the same way that every time the priest would go into the tabernacle they had to wash again. Now they had already been consecrated. They were ceremonially clean that first time when Aaron came and his sons came to the tent of meeting. But every time after that they were to enter the tabernacle they washed again. And it's a picture I believe of the kind of washing that we have in the church. An ongoing washing. What is that? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 tells us Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The washing of water with the word. There is a washing that happens every time you open your Bible. There is a cleansing process that happens in our minds when we get into the word of God as we do every week at the bridge. It washes us clean. It resets our focus. It draws out all that stuff. All the things that we might come to believe, philosophies and thoughts that the world throws out there. Man, when you get into the Word, it washes it away. You understand things in light of the truth. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's Jesus' desire for you and I, for His body, for the church. And so not only is there that picture of baptism, that acceptance of what God has done for you, but there is that ongoing washing. I have seen so many times in the Christian life People who received baptism, who came to faith in Jesus, and then on down the line, Bibles were set aside, worship was set aside, the washing ceases. And when we attempt to go into the tabernacle, into the holy place, closer with God, it's difficult to do because we haven't been washed. Jesus offers us a washing with His Word. Let's look at verse 5 of chapter 29. Consecration is pictured, first of all, in this washing that happens. Secondly, we are also robed with righteousness. Look at verse 5. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. We talked about all those different things that were part of the high priest's garments. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Now hold on with that one. We are robed, robed like a high priest. The high priest first was washed, then he was robed. In the same way the Christian is washed and robed, but we are robed with righteousness. But notice that the high priest goes first. The high priest is the first one to be robed, to be washed, to be dressed, just like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, As in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. But each, each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. You know, it's interesting, back when Christ was baptized, when Jesus came to John at the Jordan and said, Hey, baptize me, it's, it, we're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John was saying, No, I, I shouldn't baptize you. And Jesus said, Hey, it's the proper thing to do. This fulfills righteousness. How so, Lord? Because Jesus goes for first in all things. In all things. You know, there's not a single thing Jesus asked us to do that he did not already do himself. 
like the high priest who went first, who was first washed and then first robed. So in the same way, Christ was washed. Christ was robed with righteousness through his death. But verse 8 goes on and tells us, we're going to skip verse 7 quickly here. Skip verse 7 and go to verse 8. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. And you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them. And they shall have the priesthood by perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So now the sons come along and now they're robed. And they're not robed with all the finery of the high priest. They're just robed with simple but fine linen. Fine linen, bright and clean. The robes that we wear are not a righteousness earned, but they're a righteousness given. I love this verse, Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me, He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Like a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. There's expectation gained in this robe of righteousness. <clears throat> Isaiah says it's like a bridegroom or like a bride. Now, you've seen the, the movie Father of the Bride or maybe you've seen uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And on the wedding day there's that expectation as the bride is being prepared, as the groom is being prepared, there's that, there's that sense of it's coming, it's almost here, there's that enthusiasm, excitement. Anyone who's ever been married knows this, has experienced this anticipation and the robe of righteousness that we are given in Christ brings the same type of anticipation. That of a bridegroom and a bride looking forward to a wedding. And so, washed at the doorway, robed with righteousness. Now go back to verse 7. Let's read that again. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. The third aspect of consecration. Washing is the first. Robed with righteousness the second. The third is anointed with oil. And again, what does oil in the Bible speak of but the Holy Spirit? But what's interesting here, and I want you to notice this, it's only the high priest who was anointed with oil. It wasn't the sons of Aaron. It wasn't the other priests. The rest of Aaron's sons were left out in this oil anointing process. And in the same way, Jesus, our great high priest, was anointed in a way that no other priest could or would ever be. Yes, we are called to a royal priesthood. Yes, we are being developed, trained, sanctified as priests of the Lord. But not like Jesus. For Jesus was anointed in a way that we never will be. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 tells us about this. Let me read this quickly to you. Isaiah writes, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. I can't bypass this without mentioning it. I just think it's so cool that the word branch in that verse, some of you know, is netzer. It's where the word Nazarene comes from. And so even in this prophecy, a branch will bear fruits, a netzer will bear fruits, a Nazarene, a person from Nazareth, Jesus. I mean, it's powerful how it speaks of him. Verse 2 goes on and says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. 
But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be a belt around his loins and faithfulness a belt about his waist. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. In the same way that the high priest was the only one anointed with oil, Jesus is the only one on whom the Spirit of the Lord would rest with such power. And I said, wait a minute, I thought we received the gift of the Holy Spirit. I thought that as believers we received the Holy Spirit as well. Yes, but there's a difference we must not forget. We receive the Holy Spirit indwelling with our spirits, but Jesus' Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Jesus' Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is one and the same Holy Spirit that we talk about in Scripture. Though the Holy Spirit resides in me, I do not. I am not the Holy Spirit. Though He resides in each of us, we do not become. And that's important. It's an an important distinction because especially with some of the apostasy that is coming in the church and maybe even is here today, people begin to think of themselves or look for ways that they can themselves be God. We will never be God. We will never be the Holy Spirit. We will only have the Holy Spirit residing with, living with us, but we are not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Jesus was completely God, the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. We need to know that about Him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 says, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know as for you the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no no need of anyone to teach you but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it is taught you you abide in him but let's be clear about this that the anointing spoken of this picture of being anointed with oil or anointed with the Holy Spirit is not some vague force it's not some esoteric experience. It's not something that just kind of comes upon us and we, and we shake it and we, and we feel this energy sense and, and feel all these strength. It's a literal, literal action of the Father. It is the literal Spirit of God residing in us. It is the mind of Christ that we talked about. That we do have direct access to understanding these things And the world about us through the mind of Christ because His Spirit does dwell in us. When we pray for the anointing to come, we are simply using priestly language to invite the Spirit of Christ to lead us. And His Spirit is real. And His Spirit is not just a feeling. And He is not just someone who comes and goes, floats around. And Star Wars has messed it up for a lot of people. He is not a force, good or bad. He is the Spirit of God. But let's be clear that although we receive anointing, we are not the anointed one. There is one anointed one, one great high priest, and that's solely Jesus Christ. So, our consecration is spoken of in the washing and the robing and the anointing, all indicating that we, we begin our priestly training. Now moving on, verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. And Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. You shall slaughter the bull before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And you shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And you shall pour out all the blood at the base of the altar. You shall take out all the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and offer them up in smoke on the altar. Little priestly barbecue. Verse 14. 
But the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse you shall burn with fire outside the camp it is a sin offering. What does that mean? We'll talk about it when we get to Leviticus. Verse 15. You shall also take the one ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall slaughter the ram and shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around the, on the altar. And then you shall cut the ram into its pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head. And you shall offer up and smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. And if you think that's gross, I want to remind you that a bunch of our high school and junior high students just ate hot dogs. <laughs> Reading on. Verse 19. Then you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall, here it goes again, lay their hands on the head of the ram. It's the third time that's mentioned. You shall slaughter the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the lobes of his son's right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and sprinkle the rest of the blood around on the altar. Verse 21, you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him so that he and his garments shall be consecrated as well as his sons and his sons' garments with him. The priests at this point had been consecrated. At least the consecration had begun. And this phrase here, it's interesting to me, is, is mentioned three times. It comes up again and again, lay their hands. And it's, it's reminding me of a New Testament phrase of laying on of hands. As a matter of fact, if you were here a couple Sundays ago, uh, Harlan Miles joined our elders as, as one of the shepherds for the bridge, and we laid hands on him when we prayed for him. What's all this about? Specifically in the Old Testament, why? Why did they lay their hands on the head of the bull and then lay their hands on the head of the ram and then lay their hands on the head of, of the ram the third time? Why all this laying their hands? And the answer is, we get to our second point, identification. Identification. Flip in your Bibles over to Numbers chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8. We'll read there in verse 9. Numbers chapter 8, verse 9. Watch this. It's important. You shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel. And present the Levites before the Lord. And the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Watch this. Aaron then shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel that they may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. Now the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls. Then offer for the one a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. Verse 13. You shall have the Levites stand before Aaron and before his sons so as to present them as a wave offering to the Lord. Identification. Identification. What's going on here? All the sons of Israel were to gather around the Levites, who were the priests of Israel. And as they gathered around the Levites, they laid their hands on them. Something is being passed along. Some identifying process is being given from the sons of Israel to the Levites. And then the Levites turn around and they do the same thing. They go and they lay their hands on the bull that is about to be sacrificed. What's going on here? Gang, sin is being passed on. 
the, the sons of Israel, the sins of Israel, goes on to the Levites. The Levites then take that sin, it goes on to, as they lay their hands onto the bull of sacrifice, or the ram of sacrifice, it's identification. Now there's more to this. Moses is passing the mantle to Joshua. And in, John, in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18, the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. The Lord is now identifying Joshua with Moses' authority. There's identification again. The people would see Moses lay his hands on Joshua and say, Okay, Moses is now passing the mantle. Identification. We see the identification of the sins of Israel going to the Levites, going to the, to the ram of sacrifice. We see identification in the way Moses passes on to Joshua the mantle of his authority. Identification. Identification. But in the New Testament... This picture of laying on of hands is about a different kind of identification. Flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. While you're flipping there, consider this, that Jesus' miracles identified the healing as from Him. There are many times in the Gospel story where Jesus will lay His hands on someone to heal them. And there is a clear identification as to where the healing is coming from. Who has the power to heal? It was very few people who had the kind of faith of the centurion, though, to believe that Jesus could heal even without laying his hands. In fact, the reason why the centurion's faith was so intense, why Jesus was so impressed by this, by this Gentile, was because he knew exactly where healing came from even without that identification. He had a great faith in Jesus that I don't need to see you do it, Lord, because I know it is of you. I know the healing comes from you. But even as Jesus healed people, there was that identification that the healing was from him. And the Samaritans, the Samaritans were identified here with the Spirit of Christ in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent with, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, give me this authority as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But, but Simon answered and prayed, Pray the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you said may come upon me. It's a powerful story. The apostles go down to Samaria. Samaria, this place where there were half-breed Jews, basically half Jew, half Gentile, and, and the, the Jews of Judea had no respect for, no love for the Samaritans. And yet the Spirit had fallen there. There were Samaritans who were believing. And so the apostles sent some down. Peter and John went down. And to give the Holy Spirit, they did so by laying their hands on them. Identification. 
identification. What we have is dwelling in us, living in us. It's being passed to you. You are now identified with the Spirit of God. But I want you to notice this and be aware of it. That the consecration, the identification of the priests back in Exodus and of the Samaritan believers, that identification was not something that they did to themselves. It wasn't something they did for themselves. It was done to them. And the same is true for us. It's done to us. It is given to us. The Holy Spirit is a gift to us, not something that we do or have the power to do. The laying on of hands in the body of Christ is that sign of identification. And it may simply be, I identify with your pain as I pray for you. It may be that I identify with you as a brother or a sister in Christ. It may well be that we are identifying leadership as in a shepherd. But it's that picture of identification. It is not a transference of power, so to speak. Though the apostles certainly gave the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, and Timothy received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands and the gift of teaching through the laying on of hands, it wasn't something mystical or magical like Simon thought it was. You see, Simon in Samaria thought it was a magic trick and he wanted to buy into it. That's not what it was and it's never what it is. It's an identification with the Spirit of God. Well, consecration, identification number three, ordination. Back to Exodus 29. In verse 22, we'll read on. Ordination. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. Why? Leviticus is coming. Verse 23. Take one cake of bread and one cake of bread mixed with oil and one wafer from the basket of unleavened bread which is set before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall take them from their hands and offer them up in smoke on the altar on the burnt offering for a soothing aroma before the Lord. It is an offering by fire to the Lord. And then you shall take the breast of Aaron's ram of ordination and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord and it shall be your portion. Let me remind you as we read through this, we are going to understand this better later. But the reason I'm waiting is there is so much explanation. As I began to study this over the last week, I spent so much time in the first eight chapters of Leviticus that I thought, you know what, let's just wait till we get there. Okay? And we'll spend the time and understand it in the context where it's given in Leviticus. But continuing to read on, so, so if you're missing some of this, you're going, wave offering, what's that? We'll get there. We'll get there. Verse 27, Consecrate the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering which was waved and which was offered from the ram of ordination from the one which was for Aaron and from the one which was for his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as their portion forever from the sons of Israel for it is a heave offering and it shall be a heave offering from the sons of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings even their heave offering to the Lord. What's a heave offering? Leviticus 1 through 8. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him that in them they may be anointed and ordained for seven days the one of his sons who is priest in his stead shall put them on when he enters the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place verse 31 you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the doorway of the tent of meeting Thus they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. 
but a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. If any of the flesh of ordination or any of the bread remains until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire, and it shall be eaten because it is holy. Verse 35, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all I have commanded you. You shall ordain them through seven days. Ordination. The priests had to be consecrated. Their role as priestly mediators of the sins of Israel had to be identified. And next, following that, came their ordination. What is ordination? Now, you hear about ordained ministers in the church and what that's all about. And it's interesting. Different churches have a whole lot of pomp and circumstance that goes into an ordination. Mine was very simple. My dad, who was an elder of the church I grew up in, handed me a piece of paper signed by the elder so I could get a good tax break as a minister. That was my ordination. Don't tell anyone. But the word ordination literally is the Hebrew word milu. Milu. M-I-L-L-U. What does it really mean? The word milu means fulfillment or completion. They had been consecrated. They had been identified. But now we move into ordination. That is completion, fulfillment. The ram of ordination in this ongoing process of preparing the priests would complete it for the high priest and the rest of the priests in the priesthood. And without this ordination, the priest would be incomplete. The process would not be finished. To be fulfilled, to find completion as a priest, they had to go through this. They had to offer up this ram of ordination. How is that like us in Christ today? Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. That's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You could say ordained in Christ. Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 says, In Him you have been made complete. Completion in Christ. Now we've ripped through a bunch of stuff. From here on out, stick real close to what I have to share with you. It's important and very valuable. A couple of weeks ago, I was walking down for Bible study. And I had a hard day. And it's interesting how often hard days happen on Wednesdays. Now, Sharon, you understand that. Anytime you're about to teach the Word, anytime you're about to go into fellowship with the Father, it's interesting how that day tends to be the hard day. That's when Satan tries to stick it to you. And a couple of weeks ago, I had a day like that. A day where by the time I was closing up my Bible and getting ready to come down here, I was thinking, Lord, how am I going to concentrate on on the things that I need to teach? How am I going to really be here in spirit? And so walking down, I did what I have done numerous times over the last 16 months since the bridge began. I prayed, Lord, I just need some more confirmation. I, I mean, I'm sorry for being faithless, but can you give me a sign of some type? Something, make something happen tonight. Bring something to me that I know is from you to encourage me along the way. And I got down here and we began doing worship. And what always happens in worship is I started to feel a lot better. I started to find myself in the Lord. And, and when you get into the Lord, it really doesn't matter how the day has gone, does it? You just find this is good. And so the worship was good. And then we got into the teaching and I completely forgot about everything else. And as a matter of fact, in fact, about halfway through the teaching, I, you know, the thought struck me, oh, this is the Lord's answer. He just, he just took care of it. He just calmed my spirit. Well, we finished the teaching, and, and I, uh, I walked out. It was the last one out following um, Dick and Charlotte. And they were kind of waiting for me. And I didn't know why. I mean, I'm always a little leery when someone's waiting for me. You never know what's going to happen. 
And Charlotte came up, and I, I hope it's okay that I share this, but it was so meaningful to me, and it was so important. She came up and she said, I think I'm supposed to share something with you. She said, the Lord's given me a, a word for you. And she said, this is, you know, I don't remember she said this is new for me or a little unusual, but you just said, I just feel like I'm supposed to share this with you. And I said, what? And I wasn't even, again, thinking about the prayer that I had prayed walking down to the barn that very night. She said, I think he wants me to tell you that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And I just immediately went back to that prayer and went, thank you, Lord. He answered the prayer. He gave me exactly what I needed. Even though by that time, I was great. You know, worship and Bible study just took it all away. All the stuff of the day was gone. And yet in that moment, I had affirmation and confirmation from the Lord that He was going to complete what He started right here. And it made my whole day. And I was so blessed by that. And Charlotte, thank you for having the guts to, to stand up and just say it. And can I encourage you guys, when someone is nearby and you feel like you're supposed to share a verse with them, and maybe you've never done that in your life, or you feel like, man, I just, I'm supposed to tell this person something and I don't know why. Can I encourage you that it's probably the Spirit of the Lord answering their prayer? It's very likely that God is saying, hey, you need to share this with this person. Go tell them. I needed to hear that so badly that night. And it touched me and it moved me and, I, and I just, it gave me boldness and confidence. I was like, yes, this is right, this is good. And then I went home and looked up the verse that she quoted, Philippians 1.6, and she misquoted it. <laughs> Listen to this. <laughs> Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I went, oh no, the word's not complete. <laughs> Can she misquote scripture, Lord, and it still be a word from you? I mean, is that, is that work? <laughs> well, just this week I went back and looked up the verse again and I looked up the word. I love this. And I just love how God works because He knew the word was the right word. We mistranslated it. You got it right, Charlotte. The word is complete. It's not perfect. It's the word epitaleo. Epitaleo. From the word teleos in the Greek which means to complete or to fulfill. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Will fulfill it. But it's not just teleo. It's epitaleo. What does that mean, Rick? It means to further fulfill. It's a step beyond just, I mean, it's not just fulfillment. It means an ongoing fulfillment. A completion that's not a one-shot deal at the end of things, but it's an ongoing process. And we are works in progress. We are being completed day in and day out. Epi toleo. We are being drawn into this fulfillment in Christ. And you might say, well, that's great for you, Pastor Rick. I mean, you're an ordained minister. Well, at least that piece of paper says so. It's your job. It's your calling. It's your profession. Profession, and I've heard that too many times in my life to let it pass. It's not my job. It is not just my calling. It is your calling. It is what you have been created for, each and every one of us. Not just the guy who gets paid to be called pastor. That is such a misrepresentation. Do you realize that the Bible does not speak except for in Israel? There were the priests and the laity, the lay people. But in the church there is no such thing as pastors and lay people. And yet that's, those are phrases we use all the time. Oh, I'm just a layman. No, you're not. You are a priest in training. 
Your pastor is a priest in training. And there is no distinction as far as the Lord is concerned. We have all been called. We all have a profession in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. And the King James listen to this. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Christ Jesus. I don't care what your job is. Your profession is a priest of the Lord. You have been called to this completion that Christ will bring about. You have been ordained. If you're in Christ, you're ordained as one of His priests. Isn't that amazing, Heather? You are a priest. Who knew? John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus said, and listen to this, You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed, literally ordained you, that you would go and bear fruit. Ordination. In Christ you are ordained to the priesthood. Please, please don't look at a pastor and think, well, that's what he does. And I appreciate so much the desire of the pastor to get us all to do this. My friends, your priests, like it or not... You are priests in training. And I can't tell you, the the Lord must just wonder about us because there are so many believers across the face of the earth who have no idea. It's like they're going to show up in heaven. They're going to be being fitted for linen robes. They're going, what's this about? I want you to be going, yeah, I need a size uh, size 10. I need a little cap. I need a little cap. Thank you. I want you to be aware. Wouldn't it be cool to be the people as we're getting dressed in the linen robes? We know why. Because we were in training all along. That was the point. I want you to get that and to know that Jesus chose you for that very thing. Chose me? No, not me. I, I, I barely have my life together. You know, I'm, I'm struggling just to hold my family together. Or I, you know, it's all I can do to, to get up and get to work in the morning, get home and, and make life, ha- life happen. I, I'm, this is not me. This is for other people. Wrong. Wrong. It's for you. You are a royal priesthood. And you are being completed. You are going through further fulfillment, epitaleo, in your life. And Jesus Christ is the one that's going to bring it about. Praise God. That's what we're about. Going back to the priesthood of Israel, by the way, there's a graphic portrayal of the insufficiency of all this grand and glorious consecration and identification and ordination. For all of its pomp and all of its preparation, look at this, it was simply not enough. Verse 36, reading on. Each day, each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement on the altar and consecrate it. And then the altar shall be most holy and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. What's that all about? 
Say it with me. Leviticus 1 through 8. We'll get there. Good. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning, for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. Number four in our outline, continuation. It was never enough. For all of this preparation of the priests and the holiness and, and the beauty of the high priest's garments and all of the, that, that they did to get to this point, now the work begins. And what was the work for the priests? Daily sacrifice. Day after day, morning to evening, evening to morning, over and over and over, and the blood continued to flow. The brutality of the lambs killed every morning and every night as an ongoing reminder with every slaying of every lamb and every drop of blood that was spilled, we are a sinful people. Continuation. It never stopped. It never ceased. And sadly... Sadly, for the last 2,000 years, man in Christianity has attempted to shore up Jesus' sacrifice as if it were not enough. Man has attempted to do things to make the sacrifice just a little bit better, to make ourselves just a little bit cleaner. In 1215 AD, a new doctrine was declared in the Catholic Church by Pope Innocent III, who, by the way, was far from innocent, but that's another story. The doctrine taught that the Eucharist, or communion, when it was taken, it became an actual physiological transformation. In other words, when you took the bread or drank the wine, it actually became the flesh of Christ going down your throat. The blood of Christ, the juice, the wine, actually would turn into Christ's blood in your body. Transubstantiation. The bread and the wine became the body and blood of Christ himself. And furthermore, only by continuing to receive this sacrifice could a person have ongoing grace and salvation. Catholic Mass, even today, is all centered around the taking of the Eucharist communion. For that very reason, you've got to take it. That's not, by the way, why we take it every Sunday at the bridge. We don't take it to get our grace points. We don't take it to shore up, oh man, I messed up this week, better go take communion to cover myself one more time. You are saved by God's grace once and for all. But in Catholicism, this idea of transubstantiation, it's so fascinating. Why did it evolve to this point? What was the deal? You know, it got so serious in the Catholic Mass that the priest is the only one to this day who actually can, can drink the wine. The lay people can have the wafer, but none of them can have the wine. Why is that? Because of the fear that the blood of Christ would be spilled on the ground. That someone might knock over one of the communion cups, or as the wine came around, might spill it, and Christ's blood would be spilled all over the place. It's interesting, Christ's blood was spilled on the ground at the cross. The wine is only drunk by the priest. Which I guess makes his job a little more fun. But in this doctrine of transubstantiation, it's interesting that very quickly out of after that, within about 15 years, another doctrine was proclaimed in the Catholic Church that forbade the common man to read the Bible. That only the priests could bring the Word of God. Only the priests truly could understand it well enough to explain it. Therefore, the laity was not allowed to have Bibles. It was an offense. It was forbidden. And so it goes. 
Because when you don't have the Bible, you don't have the truth. But Jesus was clear about his sacrifice. Listen to his own words. John 19, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he's hanging up on the cross. What did he say? He said, it is finished. Teleo. It's finished. Done. Complete. There is no other sacrifice. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And Romans 6.10 tells us, For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Why is it then that we keep trying to make ourselves better in hopes that maybe God will forgive us? Do we not believe or understand that the once and for all sacrifice truly worked? It did. It was a done deal. We were complete in Christ in that moment. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4. says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when He, Jesus, comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of Me to do Your will, O God. And the Hebrew writer goes on in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 10 and says, He takes away the first in order to establish the second. What do you mean? The first sacrifice, the daily sacrifices, the continual sacrifices of Israel, day in and day out, sacrifice after sacrifice, Jesus set those aside, the first, in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's it. All needed. End of story. Once and for all. Which means there is nothing I can do to add to or take away from the sacrifice of Jesus. There's no way I can make his sacrifice any better than it is. It is already 100% absolutely potent and perfect to save me from my sins. No behavior. No ritual. No action on my part. No amount of church attendance or lack thereof. No doing... Communion every week. It's not the point of those things. Jesus did it. It's a done deal. John chapter 10, verse 27. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Man, when you have been covered by the blood of Christ, you are saved. And that one sacrifice is more than sufficient to cover all sin for all time, regardless of how bad you think it is. We don't have this continuation that Israel had. It's a vast difference between that priesthood and this one. This one does not go through continual sacrifice over and over. It's once and for all. But one last thing. Over the last four weeks, we have looked at the design of the priesthood. We've seen the high priestly garments, to the priestly linen, to the sanctification here now of the priesthood. And we've seen Jesus as the great high priest, and we as priests in training, being sanctified for a true and a legitimate and an actual priesthood. And in this life, what we've talked about tonight is that we are consecrated by Christ. We are identified with Christ and other believers. 
We are ordained to completion in Christ and we have no need of continual sacrifice because Jesus paid it all once and for all. And I ask the question, okay, but what is this all really for? What's the bottom line here? Why did God so intricately and purposefully design this Old Testament priesthood as this picture of the New Testament royal priesthood of the church? Why did he go to such lengths to do all of this? What is he driving at? You might add number five in your list. Eternal relation. Eternal relation. Verse 43. I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar and I also will consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I, listen to this, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, God's desire has always been to dwell with his people. That's what God is driving at. This whole idea of the royal priesthood, of sanctifying us, of cleansing us, of doing all that is needed to be done, is so that He can fellowship and commune with us, His people. So that He can bring His children home. It is His deepest desire, it is God's passion, it's His highest goal to dwell with man whom He created. And my fellow priests, that is exactly what God is going to accomplish. Final verse, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. Same three words that Jesus said on the cross. It is teleos, finished, fulfilled, complete. Let's pray. Father, it amazes me that you didn't just design a priesthood for Israel. That you didn't just set this up and come up with colors and fabrics and, and hats and sacrifices and all these things that as we read them, Lord, they, they seem strange, almost foreign to us because we don't function that way. We don't do these things in the church today. And we read these and, and understand there's so much more. That while there was short-term design for the priests of Israel, there is long-term design for the royal priesthood, which is your body, the people of Christ, the people represented right here in this room. And Father, if there is any one message you can drive home to us tonight, let it be the message that you are preparing us for an eternity of you dwelling among us as our tabernacle, as our temple as our light, as, as the very one who dwells in and among His people. And Father, sometimes in our lives, it's difficult. The flesh gets in the way and we just want to see You and we want to be near You and we want to be able to reach out and touch You. And yet You've given us such amazing promise that that day is coming when there will not be any guesswork, 
when there won't be any doubting or any confusion. We will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are our God and we are your people. My prayer, Father, is that we would begin to understand that today. That we would begin to figure it out. And that we, as priests in training, would walk this road knowing that we have been called and chosen by Christ for a very special reason. A reason that is not just to make this life a little bit better. A reason that is eternal and forever. Father, if anyone entered here tonight a little discouraged or worn out by life, I pray that you will lift our heads and help us to see that he who began a good work in us will complete it in that final day of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.